Friendship is angelic. But man needs to be triply protected by humility if he is to eat the bread of angels without risk. This is Pints with Jack. Season 5, Episode 16, The Four Loves, Chapter 4, Friendship Part 3. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your favorite weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where three friends, Andrew, David, and myself, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're talking about love, slowly and deliberately working our way through the four loves, the book where Lewis writes about affection, friendship, romance, and charity. But first, it has been a bit since we have recorded together. Gentlemen, how are you all doing? Andrew, how about you start? You've been the busiest of all of us. I've been quite busy. Thanks for asking. Well, in the new year, thanks be to God, I traveled up to Virginia during that marvelous snowstorm and took my canonical or ordination exams uh, for two-hour essays, and then came home, celebrated my fifth anniversary with Kristen. It's the wood anniversary, so I got her a wooden bookmark of Jane Austen and then a really nice set of the novels. Because uh, paper comes from wood, right? Mm. Um, <laughs> it does. She got me a beautiful uh, ashtray made out of wood for, for a, a pipe with a friend. And then uh, flew out to Texas to face my oral exams, find out how I had done with my essays, and uh, met with the Standing Committee and the Commission on Ministry for my final interviews. And all of those went swimmingly, thanks to many prayers from uh, from folks. And so I should be getting a letter soon saying that I am qualified to be ordained a deacon on June 25th. So busy, busy, busy. Also finished an article for the Perichoresis Journal. Uh, did an article on Lewis and autobiography, which is great fun. Uh, got grades back, and so almost all of my grades have come in. So all A's so far. Yay. Well done. I got one A- minus in all the seminaries so far. I'm, I'm feeling pretty bummed about that. <laughs> mm. Pray for his soul. Yes. And then they're doing a third edition of uh, C.S. Lewis's Philosopher, and I've been asked to write an article for that. And so that's what I'm doing over the next couple of weeks before school starts in February. So not a lot of breathing, but uh, lots of good <laughs> stuff. We were able to go to Bush Gardens yesterday, so that was, uh, that was great fun. I have one childhood memory of Bush Gardens on this, and I, I want to say I'm five, six, seven years old. I don't remember the exact age, but the swing that you get in a swing and it spins you around and you you start to really lift out as it gets gains more and more speed. And I've always wanted to just go back there. Even though I know I'm going to go back and be insanely disappointed because when you're five years old, everything seems amazing. And now that I'm 30 years old, it's not going to be. But for some reason, I just have the fondest memories. It's not there anymore. <laughs> it's not there. Oh my goodness. What? At least in Tampa. Maybe it's in Williamsburg. I might have gone to a different Bush Gardens if there's multiple ones too. So, well, my life—it's beginning of the new year, and I—I'm uh, following Father Mark Mary's. Uh, it's not about a lack of sincerity, but a lack of strategy. Matt has created this incredible habit routine, and so I literally have this sheet. My the person that I'm here in Savannah with right now, I'm recording. Uh, well, Christian, you guys all met Christian on the recent episode. Uh, <laughs> He, he looked at my thing, and he's a huge habit guy. He read Atomic Habits, and he's similar to me, and he goes, dude, this is just insane. 
You're, you're weird. <laughs> this is just, <laughs> this is insane. So this is the beginning of my 2022 is all about that. And I've been doing really well with the spiritual ones and the physical ones. So daily mass doing really well with a 30 minute like morning routine with uh, kind of like a holy hour, Bishop Barron's Word on Fire Bible, Decadent Rosary, some silence and solitude, the Hallow Prayer app. Shout out to that Hallow app. Their content is going through the roof. Whoop. And then the physical stuff. Uh, still need to work on the technology stuff a little bit better. Get back to these old pre-iPhone days is what I'm trying to get to. But anyways, going well there. And I'm in Savannah here because I am a godfather. And so had a baptism and always get a little emotional with baptisms. I find the the reciting our baptismal vows and renouncing Satan. There's just something powerful about those statements. They're so direct. And you say, I do. And I'm like, oh, this is just so beautiful. So I guess that's my, my life update, gentlemen. <laughs> At Alexander's baptism, it begins with the rite of exorcism. And that boy screamed. <laughs> <laughs> we had to get that Batesian rigidity out of him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, uh, my updates, I am going to be groomsman at a wedding around the time this episode is published. So I've shaved off my beard and I did it in stages. So, um, well, for two reasons, as every man knows, when you're removing facial hair, you have to do experiments along the way uh, to <laughs> see how you look with mutton chops and sideburns. Uh, but also I didn't want... I don't know this, David, because I don't get facial hair. <laughs> Well, okay. Normal men, real men, whatever you want to call them. Uh, uh, but I also wanted to make sure that Alexander still knew that I was me, uh, that he wouldn't get all confused. So I, I took it off in, in stages. And uh, what I really tried out this time was the Tom Selleck mustache. Mm. And that was why last week I posted a picture of myself on Instagram with a tagline, Tash the Inexorable the irresistible. I think it should have been stash. <laughs> well, this is a this is a joke which will make more sense once we have read this season's Narnia book, The Horse and His Boy. Um, what else? Uh, I've started reading The Silmarillion again because the Tolkien Road podcast, they're going through The Silmarillion in preparation for the new Lord of the Rings series that's going to be launching on Prime in September. And... I think I mentioned on the show the first time I was reading The Silmarillion, it is kind of like reading the Bible. There's some parts of it that are wonderful and very easy to read and some parts that you just slog through. It is also much easier the second time around. I will definitely say that. Oh, yeah, one other thing I noted. A friend reached out to me and asked me if I'd ever read Lewis's essay, The Sermon and the Lunch, and I hadn't. And I'd definitely recommend it to readers. I'll put a link in the show notes. It really links in with the Storgi chapter. Even the very examples that he gives in this essay, you find out where they came from. I'd, I'd be in full support of next season when we finish this book, doing just a bit of stint on his essays. Only because, one, I think we finally have enough of the corpus that we can connect it back to these works that we've been working on. But when I think back to the screw tape letters, David, when you brought in, in like letter eight or nine, some of the essays, and they profoundly... Like expanded on what we already had talked about. I was like, whoa, this is brilliant. And so I think it'd be a cool idea. And it would be a different vibe than going through a book. Without question, the essays are, are marvelous. And some of them are quite short. And some of them have um, some of the, the greatest ideas. And that quote that's at Westminster Abbey, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. 
uh, comes from an essay, is theology poetry. So I think that that's a great call. Maybe we, maybe we grab God in the Dock, which has got, I think, the best representative, um, and we, we, we cycle through. So excellent. Yeah, there's, there's always, what did uh, Tolkien say? You'll never get to the bottom of him. So, well, due to y'all's flexibility with my crazy schedule, we're meeting first thing in the morning, the day that this, this podcast comes out. So what's everybody drinking today? Yeah. What's, what breakfast scotch has everybody chosen? (laughs) Kavacha shake. (laughs) I think it's Kachava actually. No, I'm here in Savannah. So my buddy, I usually always have like a protein shake in the mornings with some almond milk and some frozen berries and he doesn't have my stuff, so we're improvising. Um, I've been off coffee uh, in the mornings. Just it's, uh, you know, I find it's a little acidic for me. And so I've been experimenting with some low-acid coffees and, and skipping days uh, of coffee. But for this morning, I've got a nice mug of Cafe Verona uh, with a little milk in that. And so I'm off and ready to go. Well, I now have my brother and sister-in-law living with me, and they had made coffee this morning. And I'm pretty sure it was a Starbucks blend. It's actually rather delicious. Well, uh, what is the proverbial curse? Is cursed as the man who, you know, who blesses his neighbor, greets his neighbor early in the morning. But we will toast Deborah Benstead early in the morning and pray that you find God's blessing. So cheers. 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 Oh, that's disappointing. <laughs> Not a scotch glass. <laughs> we should just get Taylor to, to insert our best ching and, and, uh, and fly that in. No, they need, the, li- the listeners need to hear us at our rawest. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the good and the bad. You get the good clings with the bad clings. Yeah. Okay. So, last time on The Four Loves. In chapter one, Jack discussed some of the key terms, and he asserted that love becomes demonic when it becomes deified. In chapter two, we looked at the love of nature and country. In chapter three, we spoke about storgi, affection, the love of the familiar. And we saw how it goes bad when it becomes ravenous, entitled, obnoxious, or domineering. And then at the beginning of this month, we began chapter four, which discusses philia, friendship. And Jack told us that it's maligned by the moderns, and that he intends to rehabilitate it in this chapter, restoring the understanding and appreciation of friendship which we find in the ancient world. He distinguishes friendship from both companionship and allyship, And he comments that it's the least jealous of the loves, and it's generally uninquisitive. He explains that it doesn't so much add to survival value, but it adds value to survival. It may, as a side product, possibly either benefit or hurt society. And we looked at how philia and eros can coexist and develop. And last week we ended with Jack looking at how philia can be established between the sexes, where there is already companionship. But we read his warnings about how detrimental it can be when friendship is forced, when there is no companionship. Anything worth adding before we move on? I know we're under the gun a little bit, but I just wanted to say two things. First of all, companionship, I think, can give rise to all of the three natural loves. Um, It doesn't necessarily have to do so, but it can give rise to, to Storgi, to Philia, certainly, and to Eros. Another thing is, these were written um, 60 years ago, 65 years ago, and I think that had Jack lived as long as his brother did, he would have lived until he until 1975. He would have lived uh, 10 years after, 10 years longer. Um, and if 
if Joy had lived as well. I think that these are preliminary thoughts to which we can add things. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think we have to really necessarily fully agree or fully disagree with Lewis. Um, I think that we see these as really great starting grounds for loves. And as I've said, this is the most formative book for me as, as an adult. But I wonder what Lewis would have said about love and friendship and romance 10 years on, especially had Joy survived. And so I think it's a good launch pad. Mm-hmm. It's funny, as you were speaking there, I was chuckling to myself because I was hearing the great divorce with the Episcopal ghost asking what his mature views would have been. <laughs> I think that that's not a fair question of our Lord, but a completely fair question of, uh, of our Lewis. I, I, yes. I do agree. And we will be talking about this more. We have so much material to get through. I sometimes feel like we don't have quite enough time to breathe, but we will be... I want to make sure that our retrospective on this book, we spend a good deal of time because I think there are lots of these sorts of issues to tease out and also really ask the question, what is Lewis actually doing in this book? Is he writing a systematic book on love or are rather these sketches which allow us to look at a particular aspect of love and to begin thinking about it? But let's push on, and here is my 100-word summary of the final part of the chapter on friendship. Given the eminently spiritual nature of friendship, Jack asks whether or not we have finally discovered love itself. He offers the following objections. Number one, the term spiritual is not an unqualified good. Number two, those in authority often are critical of friendship, seeing it as seditious and nonconformist. Number three, the population outside of a circle of friends often regards it as something prideful or elitist. Number four, finally, Lewis asserts that the Bible rarely uses philia to describe our relationship with God. Jack concludes the chapter by considering how we select our friends and the role of divine providence. Well, let's get to the text, gentlemen. Well, Jack begins this final section of the chapter on friendship by reminding us that he has been setting out to rehabilitate friendship and that he hopes that he has now shown why our ancestors regarded friendship as something that raised us almost above humanity. He says this love free from instinct, almost wholly free from jealousy and free without qualification from the need to be needed is eminently spiritual. Since this is the sort of love that we can imagine between the angels, Lewis then asks the same question that he asked at the end of the previous chapter about affection. Have we here found a natural love, which is love itself? And in response to this, Jack says, steady on. (laughs) Yes, friendship is eminently spiritual, but he points out that there is spiritual evil as well as spiritual good. For example, whenever anyone tells me that they're not religious but they're spiritual, I point out that demons are also spiritual, so there's going to have to be a little bit more specific. (laughs) In assessing whether in Philia we have found love itself, Jack tells us that in addition to remembering that something which is spiritual is not necessarily spiritually good, we should also consider three main reasons why some folks are suspicious of Philia. Firstly, the suspicions from authorities. And we mentioned this before, and Jack says that sometimes this may be justified. Secondly, uh, not only are authorities suspicious of friendship groups, he says that the majority of people outside of a group typically use derogatory language to refer to that group, calling it a coterie, a gang, a mutual admiration society. 
And while this might just be simple envy, he points out that because it's envy, it might actually strike closer to the truth than not. And lastly, he notes that the image of friendship is rarely used in Scripture to describe the relationship between God and man, typically preferring to use the more instinctive loves of Storgi and Eros. Now, Lewis is going to respond to each of these, uh, but what do you guys make of these three objections? Well, when I first came across them, I was asking myself, what's, what's the point of this? Like, why is he bringing these objections up in the first place? And then, of course, you get the answer. He's sort of backing into truths. Like, the authority is suspicious of it because, and then there's a truth, and what we're going to see in a bit is friendship can provide strength to people and give them courage and allow them to do things they wouldn't have necessarily done, which in authority's case can mean against authority. And so I was really confused at first, honestly. I was like, these are just kind of seem like interesting tidbits that didn't need to be said until I realized, oh, each one of them teaches us something about friendship. And then the back half of this conversation is going to be what those each things are. So I think the the truths that we pull out of them or we're going to pull out of them in the next 30 minutes are fantastic. And so it's an interesting method and I like what we get from it. I think here it's, um, I think that's, that's really well said and, and it's so much fun to play around with this stuff. Um, as I was thinking about this and looking over notes, um, I was reminded again, and you know, it won't be the first nor the last time that I say it, love is going out of the self towards the other. Pride is the opposite of love. Um, and these are the kind of the great, the, the great issues that are going on. Um, people ask whether or not the Inklings, this group of friends, were an inner ring. And, mm-hmm. and uh, in addition to the inner ring essay, the membership essay is worth, well worth considering um, alongside that hideous strength and other things. I don't think that the inklings is, are, are an inner ring. The inner ring, um, Lewis says, serves to exclude others, right? The clique, the gang, the, you know, the squad, whatever. Um, and pride exists to not, not to have things, but to have more things than someone else. And so an inner ring wants to exclude others. In the Inklings, anyone was welcome as long as they could contribute to the conversation in a way that, that suited everybody else. So friendship wants to add more people. Um, inner rings want to exclude people. And in friendship, as we'll see at the end of the chapter, the kind of odd response to reveling in this love is humility, is here I am amongst my betters. What are these uh, folks doing allowing me to be in their midst, a clumsy oaf? So inner rings, membership, uh, pride, these are all about ranking. Are they good enough to join us? But friendship is about humbling. It's about kenosis and theosis. It's about seeing the God who humbles himself to death on the cross, and then imitating that humility and counting others as better than ourselves, which of course we'll come to at the end of the chapter. But I think that that's, um, that's a real revelation that I think is super helpful right here. I love that you said that because my hallow prayer this morning was a 10-minute meditation on Paul when he says, Christ did not consider himself equal. Let's be of the same mind as Jesus Christ. He didn't consider himself equal with the Father, but emptied himself. And you, you practically just stated those words. So... Not a coincidence. Listen to that this morning. It's almost like there's a spirit who is holy. <laughs> <laughs> Philippians 2, probably one of my favorite passages. Now, I actually looked in my book to see what I wrote against each of these objections. Under suspicions from authorities, I wrote, the Roman Empire was suspicious of Christians. Under suspicions from outsiders, 
I wrote, danger, but not certainty. With regards to the scriptural language, I pushed back a little bit. I had a bit of a think. And for Storgi, uh, scripture talks about God being father, mother hen, uh, kinsman, redeemer, so a relative. So I sort of figured that fell under Storgi. Eros, he mentions Christ as bridegroom of the church. And throughout the Old Testament, God as bridegroom to Israel. But I thought about the use of philia. And I can think of quite a few very important examples. And I chatted about this a little bit with Mike Aquilina in our episode on the early church. Philia is used for our relationship with God, firstly in Exodus, when we're told that the Lord will speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And in James, he describes Abraham's relationship with God as a friend of God. In Luke's gospel, we hear that Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And the really crucial passage in John, where Jesus says, I have called you friends for everything that I've learned from my father, I have made known to you. So we will get to Lewis's response to this. And I agree that while the majority of the references are to Storgi and Eros, I think the Ophelia references in scripture are important. I didn't look it up, but I was wondering that. I'm like, how did we get to a point where everyone speaks of a friendship with Jesus and I, and I assumed, honestly, classic, I assume David looks it up, that scripture had more to do with Jesus and friendship. <laughs> and so I, I was kind of skeptical of his comment on that as well. Um, thanks for looking it up for us, David. Let me come flying in in Lewis's defense. <laughs> <laughs> I think that what you see in all of these examples of us being friends of God, and I know the praise chorus, you know, I am a friend of God, he calls me friend. The important part of that is that he calls me friend. It would be presumptuous for me to say Jesus is my buddy, mm. right? Or God's my pal. And I think that there's something kind of fundamentally, even redemptively, not dishonest, but I think that that Christ is, uh, that God is in the scriptures, stretching the truth in order to dignify us, right? Um, mm -hmm. As a man speaks to a friend, but it's always canonic for God to stoop down and call us friends. It's condescension. It is condescension and glorious condescension. And it also teaches us not to be haughty with those that we consider under us. Mm. And so I think that this, when God calls us friends, I think that this is this, this really thin veneer of friendship underneath the hand of agape that is self-sacrificing. And so I think that what you see here is agape disguised as friendship, if you will. I think that is... 100% spot on. We're going to be recording in the morning because you're on fire today, Andrew. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I have been very impressed with your comments, Andrew. I always am, but... <laughs> well, in the show notes, I will put a link to a song called Jesus is a Friend of Mine by Sonseed, and it is the worst earworm you have ever heard. So I invite our listeners to listen to it and not to hate me afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> but in the next section... Jack begins to consider the first of those objections, the suspicions about philia by those in authority. And he points out that while friendship is usually born of the moment when two people discover a common taste or common vision, that this shared point of view need not necessarily be nice. It can give rise to, he gives examples of torture, cannibalism, or human sacrifice. And Lewis notes that whether it's a shared delight or a shared hatred, one feels emboldened when one discovers others who share the same point of view or opinion. And so on the positive side, 
As mentioned in the interview last week with Mike Aquilina, the early Christians cared exclusively for the love of the brethren, and they stopped their ears to the opinions of the pagan society all around them. But on the flip side, it's equally true for a circle of criminals, cranks, or perverts. He says that they become deaf to the opinion of the outer world by discounting it as the chatter of outsiders who don't understand, of the conventional, the bourgeois, the establishment of prigs, prudes, and humbugs. Hmm. And his point here is that friendship can be either a school of virtue or a school of vice. It makes good men better, bad men worse. Given this, it's therefore easy to see why authority is suspicious of friendship. Because every real friendship, he says it's a sort of secession or even a rebellion. And this rebellion can be good or bad from a Christian point of view. Jack ends the section by saying it may be a rebellion of serious thinkers against accepted claptrap, or of faddists against accepted good sense, of real artists against popular ugliness, or of charlatans against civilized taste, of good men against the badness of society, or of bad men against its goodness. Whichever it is, it will be unwelcome to top people. You know, I have two thoughts on this, two, two truths. And the first one is when he talks about making good men better and bad men worse. I've always loved and believed and stressed this to people that you become the average of your five friends. And so if you have your five closest friends, and so you have a really high quality group of friends, they will pull you up. And if you have a low quality group of friends, they will pull you down. And I've always shared that with people because I look at my life and the gratefulness that I have is just having been blessed with very good people surrounding me, whether friendships or mentors that have shaped me. And that is probably one of the greatest gifts that I have been given, honestly, because I also know that you're a product of your circumstances to some degree. I don't want to take away agency, but I'm just grateful for that. And as we'll see at the end of this chapter, that might be more divine providence than my own choosiness. The other thing I was going to state is he, he mentions in here the reason they're suspicious, authority is suspicious, because of the strength that friendship can provide, good or bad. I look at my own life and I think through the chances that I have taken, whether professionally, whether personally, whether spiritually. When you have a really incredible group of friends that can be almost like a safe place, a home base, you can go out into the world and take chances and risks because you have people that love you that will support you. And I don't think you can ever overestimate the value of that. And so if anyone's listeners are listening to this and just feel like they don't have that, uh, at the end, we'll see that Lewis mentions divine providence. I also think you can play a role in being open to friendships and being discerning in good quality friendships and being intentional in friendships and relationships. And we'll just highly encourage all of that because I just think they're so powerful. And so those were some of the truths that I thought he was sort of getting with the authority suspicious. Be yeah, it's, suspicious. Don't be suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> That's a TikTok thing. <laughs> Lewis ended the previous section by saying that he's not going to focus on the badness of bad friendships, but more about becoming aware of the possible danger in good ones. He says that friendship, like all natural loves, has a congenital liability to a particular disease. And he suggests that in the case of philia, it's that friend groups are necessarily somewhat deaf to the outside world. And I love the example he gives. It's the most innocuous example of a group of stamp collectors. 
Lewis points out that the circle rightly and inevitably ignores the views of the millions who think it a silly occupation and of the thousands who have merely dabbled in it. But this is an essential feature of friendship. He says, as I know that I should be an outsider in a circle of golfers, mathematicians, or motorists, so I claim equal right of regarding them as outsiders to mine. So it's an essential feature of friendship, but what's the problem? He says, well, the partial deafness, which is noble and necessary, it encourages a wholesale deafness, which is arrogant and inhuman. And when a group cuts themselves off from receiving outside criticism, maladies become incurable, and the superiority of the group in their particular niche, be it stamp collecting or whatever, becomes an overriding superiority over all outsiders. And Lewis says that this ultimately results in something like a class, a self-appointed aristocracy. Do you agree that this is the congenital liability of friendship? I absolutely think that it can. Remember that the enemy is always going to try to turn us away from others and to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. In a similar way, he's going to try to get us to get our proportions off, think of others more highly than we should, or more lowly than we should. And I think that this is absolutely the case. There's also that the quote in the same passage that I think could have been the quote of the week. People who bore one another should meet seldom. People who interest one another often. <laughs> and it's that interest that gets born inside that kind of shows us that there is something so much better out there. And so... Um, I think that friendship being born in interest and mutual interest is, is such a good thing. Um, but then the tendency to demean those who don't share our interest or to exalt those who do share our interest, if, it's, it's kind of like in Screwtape, okay, great, your patient has gone to church, wonderful, we can do great work in the church. Okay, your patient has found a friend, good, now let me make him think of himself or think of herself more highly than she ought or others more lowly than they ought. I somewhat, <clears throat> I was Hefty Flem. I, I somewhat. I was in a band called the Hefty Flem. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. It's like, that sounds like a rock band. That's a pub band right there. The Hefty Flems are playing tonight. Down at the <laughs> oh, Taylor should just keep all that in. I somewhat thought about this from a political perspective. Because I do believe friendships can form around politics, if politics is a set of values that we, we somewhat surround ourselves with. And unfortunately, today in the political environment, it's become very bifurcated and all or nothing. And we've even seen studies where people won't become friends with the other sides of the political parties. And you almost become so strong in your views, empowered in your views. It's amazing that today, if you hold a view, you like to be around people that all support that view, and then you become deaf to anything else outside of it. And so I, I almost saw that was coming to my mind as I was reading this, that the deafness, almost political deafness. And I was also thinking about it from the uh, like wealth perspective. That can happen to you. Become friends with people that share similar levels of economic status, and then you become tone deaf to poverty. You become tone deaf to suffering. And so, yeah, I do... I do think this is possible when your friendship surrounds certain things to become tone deaf to the outside of the world. So we looked at the first strike against Philia, the distrust of authorities. Let's now look at the second strike, how outsiders regard these friend groups. And if you recall, in the last episode, we said that a good friendship makes the members of that friendship feel humble. Unfortunately, it can degrade from individual humility to corporate pride. 
And Lewis notes that nobody would call their own friend group an aristocracy. But this is a fault that we more clearly see in others. I'd say that goes for most sin in general. And he talks about three different kinds of pride, Olympian, Titanic, and vulgar. With regards to the Olympian pride, alluding to the gods of Mount Olympus, Jack tells the story of when he was at a conference and two clergymen were spouting some heretical nonsense. And Jack asked them a question, and their reply was to simply glance at one another and laugh. And he said that the sneering expressed very much what Americans would express by the saying, isn't he cute? (laughs) He says, you can hardly imagine how inoffensively it was done or how clearly it conveyed the impression that they were fully aware of living habitually on a higher plane than the rest of us, grown-ups among children. Here was a sense of superiority so secure that it could afford to be tolerant, urbane, unemphatic. So that was Olympian pride. He then talks about Titanic pride, and this refers to the Titans, who were defeated by Zeus. And to illustrate this, he tells the story of a time when he was speaking at a university society, and he met someone whose attitude was just persistently restive, militant, and embittered. And while the two previous stories were referring to people of a high intellectual level, he points out that it need not always be like this. And For the vulgar pride, he talks about the way in which those who are established in a school or a military unit, how they speak in front of newcomers, where they purposely speak esoterically and in order to be overheard. He says, everyone who is not in the circle must be shown that they are not in it. And he gives another example of this, of someone he knew who would say things like, as Richard Button once said to me, and nobody ever dared ask him who this guy was. (laughs) And whether it's Olympian, Titanic, or vulgar, the pride of friendship is hard to detect because it's hard to distinguish from philia, because friendship must exclude. He says the spirit of exclusiveness is an easy step, and thence to the degrading pleasure of exclusiveness. Hmm. Do you have any, any particular thoughts over these different kinds of pride, the Olympian, Titanic, and vulgar? It's friendship must exclude but it must exclude in order to create a space to deafen one to the world and to sharpen one's hearing to somebody whose opinions can really grow you and stretch you. Um, Membership in a ring lives to exclude. Friendship would always be on the lookout to hear that somebody else may have just a kernel of the same truth or care about the same questions that I care about, even if they care about them almost blasphemously. There's a reason that McPhee is included in that hideous strength. And so I think that, you know, as all of these prides can be reversed and all of these elements of pride can be reversed and serve as invitations, we must always be looking for how the most odious people to us have something in common with us that may make us go, oh, you too, because mercy is unstinting and unscrupulous. And if mercy will accept some as lowly as you and me, mercy wants to extend to those even that we would dismiss, especially when we get gathered with our friends. Once again, our friendships, yes, should separate from the crowd, but not to exult in ourselves, but separate from the crowd because it would be impolite to the crowd to stay there. It would be rude. It would be selfish to talk about our, you know, our use our private language with somebody else who doesn't know it yet. And it should always be reaching out. The fields are white with harvest. 
always be reaching out to find those elements in those people that we can have in common so that we can extend the love and the grace of God to them. It's this typical Lewisian flipping that we have to do. One of the questions I was going to ask is, do you think that friendship is also necessarily partially evangelistic? When I meet somebody who, say, doesn't have an interest in Lewis, I do want to share a little bit of what I love about Lewis with them in the hope of drawing them into that friend group. I was going to say, I was going to go to the means versus the ends that you alluded to, Andrew, there. And I like how you phrase that. It almost needs to exclude so the the wait what you two think can be more loud within the group because you're, you're coming together around this beautiful thing. And so if that's the case, if it's excluding for the ends of raising up this wait what you two, you by definition would love to bring other people into that if they're excited about that wait what you two or to bring them in. If it's trying to exclude just for the sake of exclusion, so no longer that end of raising up this truth that you guys see together, that's when it becomes a problem. And I really like that he used the word degrading pleasure of exclusiveness. Like you really just have to ask yourself, are you getting pleasure out of excluding people? You know, David, I like how you phrase that. You get pleasure out of bringing people in to the ring around that truth. And if that's growing bigger and bigger, that's incredible. I've had a, a, an experience just like this with our listener and supporter, Bud Summers. I fell into him with a, into a Storgi group. I go to a, attend a, a men's Bible study on Zoom on Wednesday morning, and Bud's there, and he's got interesting answers and and knows what he's talking about. And I was like, ah, man, I I like that guy. I, there's there's a what you two there, and then. Um, we chatted a little bit about scotch, and it's like, oh, what you too? And then I mentioned Pints with Jack, and he became a subscriber and a supporter. Um, and then he has been reading till we have faces. <laughs> and now every week or so, he texts me a line here or there, and there's this other sense of what you too. And so, yes, we exclude in order to humble ourselves and to love the main group. And and uh, but we always look to. There's always this move move of I'm among my betters when when we're in friendship. Now I had a couple of questions here that Andrew you've already addressed, and that was the question of whether or not the Inklings was this sort of a group. And I think we've identified the key thing that means that it wasn't an inner ring. The fact that it was open to others just as long as they could contribute. Only thing I'm going to push back there is Joy Davidman, because as we said in the earlier episodes. If, if it was simply about being able to contribute to the conversation, she should have been able to do that. And I'm sure she did. Uh, but uh, uh, she was yet never really admitted to that, that particular ring. She wasn't admitted to the ring because she wasn't in country yet. They stopped meeting in 1949. Uh. And she comes over, moves over in 53. Now, there certainly is a question as to whether Joy Davidman would have been invited to the Inklings. The rule with the Inklings, though, was any Inkling could bring anybody else to an Inklings meeting without advising anyone and just bring them. Whether or not the person was invited back depended on all of the Inklings saying, yeah, this person has, uh, has a, lot to, a lot to include. And that's why, although there are 19 inklings, there are lots of people that you hear, hear mentioned bring, you know, over the course of 15, 20 years being brought in. So um, I think that maybe if the inklings had still been meeting through the 60s, that Joy Davidman might well have, uh, might well have taken, a play, taken a part, not because she was Lewis's bride, but because anybody's bride who could hold forth like she could 
um, and cared about the same questions and was as literate as she was would have, I think, probably been welcome, if not in the 60s, certainly in the 70s or 80s. Mm, she was American, though, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis was Irish. Well, yeah, nobody's perfect. Uh, at least he had an English education. <laughs> just the English. <laughs> Okay, so we've looked at the second issue, this idea of individual humility morphing into corporate pride. Uh, and this is what outsiders see in a fringe group. They see it as elitist. And this is where we have the quote of the week, probably one of my favorite lines from this book, about man needs to be triply protected by humility if he's to eat the bread of angels without risk. What What do you guys... I'm curious. Sorry to cut you off there, David. I'm, I'm curious... So much, and one of my big takeaways so far from actually uh, Till We Have Faces and so the Four Loves is the importance of divine love saving the natural loves from themselves. And I've always asked myself this question, what does that look like? So let's say I'm a person listening to this and I'm like, okay, I want to make sure my friendship stays angelic and stays the proper route. What, what do I do in my daily life? Do I wake up every morning and spend five minutes meditating on gratitude? Uh, do I, is it just by giving into the spiritual life more and these spiritual practices, like I mentioned in the morning mind, that just naturally will permeate your life and protect them? Like how, how, how does this play out? What's this transmission mechanism of the divine love saving the natural loves, and in this case, friendship? Can I tackle that one? Because I can do it succinctly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, come on, Andrew. Don't lie. <laughs> I can. Ready? Matt, the exact answer to how we can protect these loves is chapter six. Which one's chapter six? Oh, okay. dang it, I stand David. Corrected. That's <laughs> Andrew. <laughs> That's Agape. And so in Agape, Lewis talks about how Agape works with and redeems all three of the natural loves. And so that last chapter, what is the, the third time pays all, right? And so that last chapter, we'll, we'll discuss exactly how this happens. So you're telling me delayed gratification. Mm, not my strong suit. <laughs> I'm just telling you to read more Lewis and faster. <laughs> or I have to read ahead, actually. Ahead? <laughs> I'm going to add something else to this. And I'm sure this will be probably our main topic of discussion, both during that chapter and especially afterwards, trying to put all of this together. The other thing I would add to this is virtue. We see this throughout all of the loves. Whenever he talks about what needs to happen to keep that love in place, you can boil it down to the cardinal virtues. Prudence, temperance, fortitude, all of those. It helps keep those loves in place and allows you to love in the way that we're going to see in chapter six. And virtue comes from abandoning self and looking to something higher. So now we come to the final issue which Lewis raised, and that was the issue of scriptural precedent. And in the final part of the chapter, he offers a suggestion as to why he thinks scripture rarely uses friendship as an image of the highest love. He says that perhaps it's too spiritual to be a good symbol of spiritual things. Hmm. He says that God can safely represent himself to us as father and husband, because only a lunatic would think that he was physically our father or our husband. But he says, if friendship were used for the purpose, we might mistake the symbol for the thing symbolized. We might be further encouraged to mistake that nearness, by resemblance, to the heavenly life which friendship certainly displays for a nearness of approach. Hmm. Any thoughts on that? I'm really not quite sure how I feel about it. 
I think that Lou is talking about how friendship is in some ways the most spiritual of the of the natural loves uh, is really true. It's not necessary to survival. It's not as physical. It's not inherent. It's not necessary. He said we need Eros and Storgi to be conceived and reared. We don't need friendship. Um, as we've talked about before in the past, friendship is the society is suspicious of friendship because it's so rarely there or they can't monetize it. Um, and there's something fundamentally humbling about friendship. And that, I think, also kind of echoes of heaven, right? And so I think that the scriptures, uh, I think I like Jack's point that friendship is too close an analogy because an analogy has to take two unlike things and rope them together like a good poem. Friendship, um, because of its canonic nature and theotic nature, um, kind of operates in the realm of um, of divine love uh, to a certain extent. And that's why I think the enemy has to work much harder in a much more complex way to pervert friendship, right? And get it really off track because, because it is so resembling. Um, for God to call us friends, I think, is ultimately humble. And like I said, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't accuse God of being disingenuous. But I think that he stoops to honor us and it's a sign of the stooping and so i think that that friendship is rich with the trappings of divine love um which is part of why it doesn't i think uh provide a good enough contrast to be a as a as effective a metaphor as some of the others yeah i think i struggled slightly i was kind of maybe in between i didn't like disagree with the point i definitely agreed with this concept that you can't use a spiritual to describe a spiritual but i sort of thought i've always operated under the the framework that the affection is the most natural then friendship then eros then agape even though eros has a very animalistic component to it from the, the, the sexual act it also has an incredibly divine component to it of dying to yourself for your spouse uh, more than friendship probably even goes to um and so you can do that with friendship but I think you're you're called to and almost required to, or <laughs> within the the eros one. And so I, I definitely thought it was much more spiritual than affection, uh, but I I probably would have put personally eros as even more spiritual than um, even though there's not like marriage in uh, heaven, uh, I would have gone that way in the sense that if you define it as the most Christ-like, um, yeah. Andrew is shaking his head. Get him, Andrew. <laughs> See, they all they all echo God's love mm-hmm. in different aspects, but the highest does not stand without the lowest, right? The beasts share storgi, some aspects of storgi, and some aspects of eros, but I don't think the beasts share friendship with us, right? There's no such thing as a cheetah saying to another cheetah, "Oh, you too? You like antelopes too? Let's talk about that." You know, it's all biological, and so. Because friendship is a higher love, right? Um, because the the beasts don't share it, it takes on different qualities, and so I think that friendship is perhaps more like the angelic uh, than it is like the the beastly. And in that sense, when we're dealing with a higher realm, it's going to be dealing with different a uh, different economy. The only real thought that I had in regards to this section was actually something that we mentioned before when we view God as our buddy. As our pal. I could get behind Lewis's point insofar as when we call God our friend, we might simply think of earthly friendships. And because it is so close to the heavenly, we might think that's it. That 
my relationship with God is like that that I could have with a really good friend, but it goes no higher. Whereas with those other kinds of love, with the Storgi and with the Eros, I know, I necessarily know that God's fatherhood of me is infinitely greater than that of my biological father. That the relationship that I have with Marie, it only points towards something else. That is very clear to me. Whereas I think you could very easily mistake brass for gold if you view God as simply your friend. And rather than seeing it as a, a signpost, an arrow pointing towards something higher, you come to the signpost and you think you've actually found the reality. Friendship with God is always an act of humility or lowering for him, and it's always an act of exalting. As we near the end of the chapter, Lewis offers an assessment of how we save friendship from going bad. He says that friendship, like the other natural loves, is unable to save itself. In reality, because it is spiritual and therefore faces a subtle enemy, it must, even more wholeheartedly than they, invoke the divine protection if it hopes to remain sweet. And that we're going to find out about in chapter six. He says that it shouldn't become a mutual admiration society, but that it must be a society full of appreciative love, since without it, it can't possibly be friendship. And when he's talking about the solution, he alludes to the Pilgrim's Progress. And I haven't read the Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, so <laughs> I sent Andrew a message uh, yesterday saying, oh, could you take this bit? Andrew, what do you think he's talking about here? So I have to confess, um, I also have not read Pilgrim's Progress, uh, but I did do a little bit of reading uh, in this in this bit. And so Christiana, the wife of Christian, belatedly comes and follows the same path, and she's got her children with her, and they're welcomed into this, the house of the interpreter, and all of her children are washed and clothed and you know, remove the travel garments removed and they get, you know, essentially they become glorified. And when she sees them, she's in some ways humbled and, you know, stunned. It's, it's a, it's a sense of the weight of glory or, you know, or like a metaphor from the, from the great divorce. Um, and so when she sees them as they really are exalted by God, she feels humbled by her own children. And so there's a little bit of that too, where we see revealed our neighbor's glory. And in The Weight of Glory, Lewis says we can think too much about our own glory, but we can't think too much about our own neighbor's glory hereafter. And when she sees her own children glorified, it takes her out of herself and re makes her realize just how precious these people are. And so I think that's part of what Lewis is going for here, the ultimate hu humility that must accompany friendship. Hmm. The only thing I would add to that is, so I read the little section in the story, I think it's the fact that they are washed you know, externally. They are clothed from without. Basically that somebody, capital S, is giving them these things. The glory that she is seeing uh, was imparted to them. So in the same way that seeing them glorified takes her out of herself, it also points towards God. Exactly, exactly. And that's the move always of Christianity. That's the move always of divine love. That's the whole point of this book. And that's, you know, the center of Lewis. Out of ourselves, into Christ we must go. And Jack ends the chapter on friendship by talking about who becomes a friend. He says that affection is all about familiarity and therefore proximity. Uh, the songs and poems about love, eros, are always telling us that it's destiny. <laughs> 
But in contrast, we could be under the illusion that we have chosen our friends, each of us ascending above the rest of mankind by our own native brilliance. However, Lewis points out that in reality, a few years difference in the dates of our births, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, the accident of a topic being raised or not raised at the first meeting, any of these chances might have kept friends apart. So it might seem like it's just a matter of dumb luck. But he also points out that for a Christian, chance isn't really a thing. Mm-hmm. Referencing the end of John's Gospel, he says, A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to his disciples, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say of every group of Christian friends, You have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. David, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I, I was just thinking about our chance meeting uh, and then this podcast being birthed out of that. I'm not sure we would have crossed paths at that ever again. Mm-mm. Like that was, I'd never crossed your path beforehand. No. And hearing that you didn't really ever go to St. Bridget's, you were part of some other church communities. I'm not quite sure we would have ever crossed paths after the fact. And that was like someone's going away party. Yeah. And so there's some degrees of separation between us of a couple of his different groups. And yeah, it's kind of funny to think Pines with Jack would not be here had it not been for that one day. <laughs> If David and Matt hadn't been out partying. (laughs) (laughs) Something or someone speaks with the same voice. Um, I'm also struck by the sense of eternality or timelessness that's present in friendship and not present in the other natural loves. You know, I have to remind myself uh, of who my high school friends were in order to kind of get back into that mode or my work friends or whatever. Lovers, when they're parted, need to reacquaint themselves uh, with each other. But friends pick up as if no time has passed, right? And so there's almost something ongoing or eternal to the friendship love than to the other loves. And yes, it seems like chance on our own end, but I think that God intends for us great good, including the one of the greatest goods in this world, which is friendship. I mean, it was a chance that I heard about you guys or you heard about me and got in touch. And now, you know, we've, we've got this friendship now that, um, that seems like it's following the natural course of events, but it also even more so seems like a master patterner wanting us to feel this great love um, for each other. And that echoes his love for us. What's the role? How would you guys articulate the role between divine providence in your own agency over your friendships? Because in the thing, thing, same thing can go for married spouse. You can't just sit and necessarily wait for God to have the spouse knock on your door and say, we're going to get married. You need to be open. You need to be seeking. Uh, but you also, and you need to be discerning and a little bit choosy, but you also have to recognize after it happens, God made this happen, clearly. And so what's that, how does that go with friendship for you guys? How do you think about that relationship? I don't think I'm going to solve sovereignty and free will in the closing <laughs> minutes of this episode. So I'm just going to say it's a mystery and move on. <laughs> I will. <laughs> It's the same mystery that St. Paul uh, recommends about our salvation, where he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God at work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. 
And the same can be said of friendship. You know, you do your best to maintain your friendships in fear and trembling and humility because it is God whose good pleasure it is to give you these loves. And so I think that there's that tension, exactly as David said, between sovereignty and free will, that is a mystery to us and and apparent to God. And I can't wait to hear him laugh when we discover how these things were of of the same piece of when we get to heaven. Andrew, you are bringing it this morning. (laughs) Well, I'm going to end just by reading some of the closing lines of this chapter. The friendship is not reward for our discrimination and good taste in finding one another out. It is the instrument by which God reveals to each the beauties of all the others. They are no greater than the beauties of a thousand other men. By friendship, God opens our eyes to them. They are, like all beauties, derived from him. And then, in good friendship, increased by him through the friendship itself so that it is his instrument for creating as well as for revealing. At this feast, it is he who has spread the board, and it is he who has chosen the guests. It is he we may dare to hope, who sometimes does and always should preside. Let us not reckon without our host. Hmm. And then he ends the chapter with a warning against excessive solemnity. And that's the subject which we'll return to in the next chapter when we look at Eros. And I just want to add that um, that friendship should not only make us feel humble amongst our friends, it should make us humble and serving towards other people with whom we will never share friendship, but a great hope that they will find a friendship that f- has the same quality as ours, even though the subjects are vastly different. It should make us uh, make us loving towards those f- for whom we will never be friends, with whom we will never be friends. I hear the last call bell here at the King's Arm. And so we want to thank all of our Patreon supporters. There's been a, a wonderful influx here in the beginning of the year of new supporters. Uh, and uh, almost all of our supporters usually support us at the Slack level or above. And so most of them are on Slack. So we've, we've had incredible interactions on Slack lately. I, I, I love seeing it just gain momentum more and more and more every single season with new people, new personalities, new insights, new denominations being represented. It's just a wonderful gift. And so we want to thank all of our supporters, uh, especially our top tier supporters, uh, Anonymous, Bill and Joanna, Snort, which when I sent Snort an email, it was Jake was the email. So I'm not sure Snort's the first name, but but when I sent the email. It was the name used in Patreon. We're going with it. I, I, if you're listening to this, when I sent you the email of, of setting up a FaceTime, I, I didn't know if I should use Snort or Jake. And so I just went with, hey, and just left it at that. <laughs> Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. Incredible to think that's just the, the top tier. We have so many wonderful supporters. You guys are a blessing. Uh, and so with all of that, guys, uh, please join us next time. When we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. 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 Cheers.